Lord, we are thankful for the beautiful rain that you've sent our way. It's an answer to prayer. We're thankful, Lord, for the multitude of blessings which are ours even every day. As the song sing, uh, professes, we are experiencing showers of blessing, and uh, we're thankful to you, Lord. And we recognize that you are the author of all that is good and all the wonderful things that happen in our life. And we know, Lord, that you, at the same time, are here to give us strength through the difficult things that come our way. Because we know we have an enemy who would like to defeat us and prevent us from serving you as we should. And so, Father, we, we just depend upon your strength and resist his influence today. Now, Father, I ask for your blessing during this time that we share together concerning your word. We ask, Lord, that your word will truly be living and powerful and reaching down into the very core of our being as we study together this morning and submit to your authority. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like for us to uh, read again from chapter 14 of Genesis, beginning at verse 17. We began to deal with this at the end of class last time. Genesis 14, 17. Then after his return from the, de the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveth, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, professor of heaven, possessor of heaven and earth. Professor, too. <laughs> and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he gave him a tenth of all. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, honor, Eshkol, Mamre, let them take their share. We looked at this passage, at least the first part of it, in our last class period. And the last thing we talked about, let me just review it quickly for us this morning. Abram is bringing this great crowd of people that he has recovered from Chedorlaomer and his army back with him down the ridge route, past the Sea of Galilee, down through the area, probably past Shechem, all the way down towards Hebron. And on the way, he comes to what most believe was the site of Jerusalem. And as I mentioned to you last time, most believe that the Valley of Sheveth was the upper part of the Kedron Valley, uh, just between the old city of Jerusalem and Mount Scopus. There he has this, this encounter with two kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. And we saw that it was the king of Salem that came out and provided bread and wine and a blessing as we read about it here this morning. Now, the, there are at least three views as to whom Melchizedek was. The standard view, the view most often taken by commentators, was that he was the king of Jerusalem, that he was a Canaanite king, 
but that he had had an encounter with God, similar to the encounter that Abraham had had, and that he knew the God of heaven, that he knew God most high, El Elyon, and that somehow he had become a priest of God. And therefore, this man was a type of Christ, a kind of a forerunner in some way of Christ. I mentioned to you also last time that the, the rabbinical teachers, that is the tradition within the rabbis of the Jewish faith, is that this was Shem, and that Shem was yet alive. And this was probably Shem, Shem's last great contribution here as he encountered Abram and blessed him as the one who had survived the great flood. But as I also mentioned, that seems highly unlikely not only because it seems so long since the flood that this event takes place, but also since the Hebrews passage seems, in my opinion at least, to rule out the concept that Melchizedek was a normal human being in the sense of being either a Canaanite king or being Shem. Let me just read a few verses from Hebrews. We won't read that whole passage again, which we read at the end of class last time. But let me just read a few verses from Hebrews chapter 7 relative now uh, to Melchizedek. Much of this chapter deals, in fact, almost the entire seventh chapter of Hebrews deals with teachings relative to Christ involving Melchizedek as the archetype, priestly archetype. In verse 1, we read, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abram as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abram apportioned a tenth of all, that, of all the spoils, was first of all by translation of his name king of righteousness and also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Now, the, the third verse is the one that seems to change the character of this all. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Then verse 8, And in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one received them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And then verse 15, And this is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now it seems to imply that Melchizedek was an unearthly person. Yes, he was there in what appeared to be the flesh, but there are many commentators, particularly in more recent years, who believe that this was a theophany, that this was a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, because there are only two members of the Melchizedek priesthood, that is Melchizedek and Christ. And that the Melchizedekan priesthood is higher than that of Aaron. And of course the Aaronic priesthood is the one that came straight out of the loins of Abraham. And Abraham is considered in many ways to be a type of Christ in and of himself. So it just seems, at least to many, that what we're looking at here is a manifestation of Christ in human form, at least what appeared to be human form, uh, ministering directly to Abram and blessing him in the long term. Now, it seems that in some ways David believed that. In Psalm 110, 
which is where the Hebrews passage quotes uh, the statement, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, we read these words, Psalm 110, beginning at verse 1. The Lord, and the word here is Yahweh, says to my Lord, and the word there is Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make thy, thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. And the Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy power will volunteer, thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Thy youth are to thee as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This seems to be a messianic psalm, at least in this first part, a reference to Messiah, because it says, Yahweh says to Adonai that these things will be so, and then refers to him as the one who is after the order of Melchizedek. In order for... The, the order of Melchizedek seems to be an eternal order by the references we see here in Psalms as well as in Hebrews. It is higher than the Aaronic order. And the only two members of it are Christ and Melchizedek. And it seems, at least to me, that whenever there is one who is equivalent to the other, that especially if it's God, it's got to be God himself. And so that might seem to be so. But, as I said, there are many who say that this was a type of Christ, a real man, a Canaanite king, but he was one fantastic type of Christ, if, if that is so. Now, verses 21 to 24 of this particular passage in Genesis, chapter 14, as we read this morning, contrast a worldly king with a godly king. Bera, king of Sodom, offered Abraham a deal. Such a deal I have for you. While Melchizedek did not offer a deal, he offered a blessing. And of course, that blessing was far greater than any deal that any king could offer. And, and this deal that he offers is the same old program that we find over and over again. God offered Adam and Eve a blessing. He offered them perfection. He offered them eternal life. But Satan offered them a deal. It's the age-old story. We're mostly familiar, are we not, with Faust? Mephistopheles offers Faust a deal. <laughs> Directly in contrast to the fact that God has always offered a blessing. That's who God is, the one who blesses. He is the blesser. The enemy is the one who would take away our blessing. What is really interesting to me is the fact that Satan even dared to offer Jesus a deal. He took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things will I give to you. If you fall down and worship me, such a deal he had to offer, all the kingdoms of the world. But if you think about that, what kind of a deal was that really? He was offering to the king of the universe 
bunch of puny little old kingdoms. Remember when uh, Solomon received a great deal of help from Hiram, king of Tyre? He received wood and, and workers and uh, trained men who helped to build a temple and so forth. And Solomon, in exchange, provided them, of course, with food and, and uh, housing and all of that, but also offered them 20 cities. He gave to Hiram, king of Tyre, 20 cities. If you remember that account, Hiram went to look at the cities and he was very disappointed because they were a bunch of puny little villages that didn't amount to anything. And that's really what we're looking at here. Satan is offering to Jesus the kingdoms of the world, but what are they? They're nothing compared to the glory of the eternal one. And besides, what authority did Satan have anyway? He was merely a vassal. Satan had, didn't have ultimate authority over these kingdoms anyway. He only had what authority God allowed him to have. So this was really an absurd situation for Satan to be offering Christ. But of course, if Christ were to have functioned only in the flesh, he could have been seduced by this, right? But he was functioning also in the spirit. But look at us. We are children of the king. We are heirs of God, and the scripture tells us joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And we often sacrifice God's blessing for a deal, some kind of a deal that the enemy is offering. You've all heard of the tragedies that have swept many churches across the land, where the pastor you know, let's go of, of the work that God has given him for some little moment of flesh or, you know, some leader of a ministry. Let's go of the work that God has given him because of a, a, just a joy of the moment, a fleshly joy of the moment. Say, the person has bought into the deal. We try, in some ways, to build our own little kingdom here on earth and gather our possessions and gather our toys. Yeah. He who dies with the most toys wins, right? We've all seen that bumper sticker. Um, I mean, if that isn't a statement of hedonism, I don't know what is, you know. I mean, it's the most ludicrous idea that anybody could have, but it really is a statement of having bought into the deal. Satan has blinded the eyes and confused the mind so that that, uh, that moment of flesh is, is worth surrendering the eternity of blessing in many people's eyes. Like Lot, I think sometimes we're tempted to compromise our ethics, our morality, even our godly reputation in order to what? Gain what? Security and acceptance within the world, as Lot did. May God help us to be like Abram. Now, Abram, we already know, was far from perfect. I mean, he really blew it down there in Egypt. But God picked him up and carried him on. And God uses him over and over again as an example. And you read through the New Testament how many times Paul refers to Abraham and James refers to Abraham and others as an example of what it means to be a person of faith. God doesn't expect us to be perfect because he knows we can't be in the flesh. But he expects us to be people of faith and to reject the deal when it comes along. These are the words of Alan Ross in the Bible Knowledge Commentator. He says this, The king of Sodom 
was obviously a wicked man over a wicked empire. Abram discerned that dealing with him might be dangerous. Abram could have reasoned. Now, this is a very, to me, a very pointed statement this man's making here. Abram could have reasoned that God was seeking to bless him by means of this offer. But he could not bring himself to equate the blessing of God with the best that Sodom had to offer. You hear this all the time. Somebody who has accepted something that is tainted because he has convinced himself that this was God's means of blessing. It's sort of like the person who, who felt that, you know, he's going to really uh, be able to, to minister for God if he just had the money. So he goes out and he gambles and gambles and gambles to try to get this money so that God can bless him. You know, you, you violate the very tenets of Scripture in order to try to carry out what you think God wants you to do. It just isn't the way it is. God expects us to act ethically, morally, and righteously in every situation. And if that means rejecting that which is tainted of the world, so be it. Even if that would have somehow supposedly helped us carry on God's ministry. Now we have to realize, I think, that the king of Sodom was not himself... I don't think the king of Sodom was thinking that this uh, was going to be a way that he'd be able to compromise Abraham. I don't think that at all. I think the king of Sodom was offering Abram the goods that he'd recovered because he was grateful that Abraham had done all of this and that he'd brought back the people. And for him, you know, if I got the people back healthy and well, it, it's, it's a good, you know, it's, it's a good deal. Let me give Abram all of these things uh, in exchange. So, you know, I don't think he purposely was attempting to somehow subvert Abram. In addition, they were the spoils of war. And according to the tradition of those days, and really the tradition throughout history, the spoils, you know, to the victor go the spoils. So rightfully, the spoils did belong to Abram and those that were with him. By the law, international law of the day, those, they did belong to him. But Abram rejected them. He had been amongst the Canaanites these many years. And... He knew that God had him there to be a witness to the Canaanites. And what kind of a witness would he be if the Canaanite king could say, but look, I made that man wealthy. It's not really his God which did it. I did it. That would compromise his witness. Abram was concerned that God alone received the glory. We've all sung that song, To God Be the Glory. And really, that's what the purpose of our life is, is to give God the glory in all that we do. And that's why anxiety and fear are, are, are not to characterize us. And, and we'll be talking about that as we get into this next chapter. We're, we're to be people of faith because our God is great. And our God is perfectly capable of meeting our every need and helping us along. And, not, and, and we do not need to depend on the things of this world and the ways of this world to achieve God's purposes in God's glory. And I think today that there's been too much of a tendency amongst many of God's people to use the world's methods to achieve supposedly God's purposes. To go out and use Madison Avenue as the way to, for example, garner funds to carry on, quote, a ministry of the Lord. I don't know about you, but when some ministry calls me and tries over the phone 
to intimidate me into giving money to that ministry, I'm turned off by that because I don't think that's God's way of operating. And I told the guy so, and he was very apologetic. But, you know, uh, I just don't think that's the way God operates. Not that we shouldn't use our wisdom, and not that there aren't wise ways to do things, but when we depend on worldly methods to do God's work, I think we, we miss the mark. And Abram seemed to really understand that. And he wanted to be a witness among these Canaanites, and so he was not going to let any Canaanite take credit for what God had done in Abram's life. Notice in verse 22, we read that, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread and so forth, so that you could say that you made me rich. Uh, I, this is really interesting to me because, as we noted last week, God had never been referred to as El Elyon in Scripture up to this moment. Melchizedek, that's what he used to refer to God. And instantly it seems that Abram picks up that terminology because now he refers to God as El Elyon. And, you know, that, that to me just indicates how uh, significant was Melchizedek's influence in the life of this man, Abram. I think he was, he was almost thunderstruck by this encounter. And he felt that Melchizedek was the man to, to follow, to pattern his life after. Now, what spoils did Abraham accept? Well, he did accept whatever the food the men had already eaten. Pretty hard to, <laughs> to uh, deny that. And then also, he accepted a proper share for honor and eshkol and memory. After all, he couldn't force them to stand by his ethics and his his. Uh, relationship to God. Whatever they believed about the God of Abram, we don't know here at this point. We know they were Amorites. Uh, but he couldn't force them to walk by his rules or his beliefs. And so they were to be given their share. Now, it seems at the bottom of your outline now, it seems that the least we should learn from Abram's example is two things, are two things. The least we should learn. The least we should learn is or are, Alan? Are two things, is two things. Well, the least we should learn <laughs> are two things. <laughs> are, thank you. That's <laughs> what I was told from the back, too. That's what I love about English, you know. <laughs> Sometimes you just really, it sounds good both ways, you know. It's like lying or laying, you know. I mean, that is, <laughs> those are two of the most misused verbs, and I'm sure I do it a lot too. First, that we seek acclaim from God alone. That we seek our acclaim from God alone that we don't seek human acclaim. Now, if God chooses to bring human acclaim, that's His choice. And that's, of course, part of the honor we receive if we have served Him. But that should not be what we seek. I, I think it must be really difficult for Christians 
in, in, in the world of entertainment because the goal seems for most entertainers to be to gain human acclaim. And it's really got to be hard for, for entertainers who are Christians to always keep their eyes on the Lord and try to realize that it's his acclaim that counts and human acclaim that is not important, especially if God's acclaim is not in it. Now, our pastor has been preaching from the first chapter of Luke. And I'd like to turn to there as just an example of this truth by the one who became the mother of Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 39. She's already had her encounter with the angel, and now she's going to visit Elizabeth. Now at this time Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, that the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who is who, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed." She was not a young lady who sought for human acclaim. She was a peasant girl, probably quite young. And certainly she was not in the forefront of society. And yet she knew because the angel had come and told to her and told her that she would become the mother of the Messiah. She knew by the uh, enlightenment of the Holy Spirit that all generations to come would call or count her to be blessed. She would have human acclaim because of what God had done. She had been faithful, seeking only God's will. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. And yet human acclaim would come to her. She, I think, is a humble example of the truth of the fact that we are not to seek human acclaim, but to seek the, the acclaim of God alone. Now, of course, acclaim would come to Abraham. It already had, but that was God's doing. Secondly, a second truth that I think we need to glean from Abram's example here is that we gain fortune only honestly in accordance with God's principles and only for his glory. If he chooses to give us richly of this world's goods. That's his choice. It should not be ours to seek. 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 10. And it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked these things. He asked, of course, for wisdom and understanding to discern between good and evil. And God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, 
nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a, wi a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be among any among the kings like you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. See, Solomon did not ask for these things. He asked for, for what God wanted him to ask for. And therefore God says, therefore I will give you these other things. I will give you riches. I will give you honor. They came from God. Now we know Solomon would really mess up later on down the line. But God was honoring the faith and the commitment of this young man as he became king over his people. A man who was wise enough to say, I don't know how to be discerning and just. Please, God, give me this. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we had leadership that, that would admit that? Would say, I don't know how to be a good legislator. I don't know how to be a good administrator, president, governor. God, give this to me. Now, hopefully, some do and, and will pray that, but I'm afraid too many come to power assuming that they've got all the knowledge and wisdom they need to, uh, to do their thing. Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy are important for us to understand here too, I think. 1 Timothy 6, verse 7. <laughs> we need to keep reminding ourselves of this. For we have brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either. This is, of course, in reference to physical, material things. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. It doesn't really say we should be. It says we shall be. For those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Notice, those are not material things, none of them. What we are to pursue are those things of the Spirit, those things which enable us to be the light and salt of this planet. But we really have a tendency to get our priorities mixed up, don't we? And it's really hard to separate it because we know we have to have a house to live in, we need to have a car to get around, we need to have food, we need to have clothes. It's hard to draw the line and to be content with what we have. We, we keep wanting to, to be like the others, the rich and the famous, right? We, we want to have that, that nicer home. So what? We can have a Bible study in it. <laughs> or, you know, we can entertain missionaries or, or whatever else. We can think of all kinds of excuses why we need that bigger, nicer, fancier home. And, you know, God may give that to us. But if that's God's gift, that's one thing. But if we've pursued that and if we've put our energy into seeking that above everything else, then we may be missing the mark. 
And I think that's the example of Abram here. He could have said, yeah, give me all the stuff because I want more stuff. I mean, he already was an extremely wealthy man. He had a household of 2,000 probably. Uh, what more did a guy need, you know? Uh, he had camels and horses and donkeys and sheep and goats and, you know, I mean, just vast herds of the things. That's what it seems to imply here. Uh, what, are, what are a few more, one way or the other, you know? But that seems to be the problem that the wealthy have. It seems like if you've earned your first million, why can't you... I'm not talking to anybody here, but I, at least I don't think so. <laughs> if I am talking to somebody here, let me, let me tell you about some needs. <laughs> We've got a building to build out here and over at the college. <laughs> but anyway, why is it a person who's earned his first million isn't satisfied? He's pursuing that second million or that 10 million or that 100 million. Why can't he stop and, and, and just, you know, use what he's got for the kingdom of God? What did the Lord say? Not many rich will enter the kingdom of God because their trust is in their riches and not in the Lord. Abram is an example of one who could be rich, however, and at the same time trust in God. And God honored him and trusted him with these riches. And I think many of us are not rich for the very reason that God might not be able to trust us with it if we had it. I'm talking about rich in this world's goods. Hopefully we are all rich in the presence of God in our lives and in pursuing righteousness and godliness and these things that Paul admonished Timothy to seek after. Let's look at chapter 15. This is on your next page 36 of your outline. This chapter deals with a promise of a son. A very, very important issue to Abram and Sarah. Wonderful things are described in chapter 14. This Bedouin sheik has defeated a large army from, from nations to the east. He has won a claim. He has had an encounter with Melchizedek. Wonderful things. But he is still troubled. God has blessed him. Blessed him above anybody else, it seems, who has lived up to this time so far. And yet he's a troubled man. He was well known. I think his acclaim was known from the Negev, prob probably Kadesh Barnea, all the way to Damascus. People knew of this great, wealthy Bedouin named Abram. But he carried the stigma of not having a blood heir to all that he had, to his name as well as to his goods. The fact that years were passing rapidly, and there was no heir in sight. No one who would be from his own loins, who would take over his position. And this seemed to cause within Abram anxiety and fear. And God understands this. Now, as, as you also read in Hebrews, Jesus became one of us that he might know what it's like to be a man or, or a woman and to understand the, the problems we face and the needs that we have and the trials and tribulations of our life. And so God came to meet him at his point of need. And that's, I think, an important biblical concept for us always to remember. God always comes to meet his people at their point of need. 
Sometimes we don't recognize it because we're so sorry for ourselves. We don't recognize that God is there and God is working. But he does meet us at our point of need because he loves us. Because he knows what our need really is. And therefore he comes to us. Let's read the first verses of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And the Lord said, no, and, and Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heaven and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. This whole passage, I believe, reminds us of the fact that God cares for us. And God cares to meet us wherever our need may be. And it also teaches us that God will communicate with us God will communicate with us, but sometimes we're not listening. Sometimes we're full, so full of worldly, quote, wisdom, we can't hear God's voice. We've got to always remind ourselves that, oh, sure, there's sometimes there are good things in worldly wisdom, but the Scripture teaches us that God's ways are higher than our ways. And, and worldly wisdom is, is not necessarily the product of the Spirit of God. We read that the word of the Lord came to Abram. This is the very first appearance in Scripture of that phrase, word of the Lord, which can be translated also speech of the Lord. But it isn't the last. That phrase is going to recur over and over and over again through the remaining books of the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, where constantly they were saying, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah and he delivered this word to the people. Thus, saith the Lord. The word or speech of God is the expression of the nature and of the attributes of God himself. It's really important we understand that. We're, we're, we're told today, and of course, you know, the Bible is taught as literature in, in many secular universities. It's just, you know, it's, it's like reading Virgil or, or uh, Shakespeare or anything else. It's just another good piece of literature in some people's estimation. But it's not at all. This book tells us about God. 
And it describes His nature, and it describes His attributes. This is how we know that we have an eternal, all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God. And all of the attributes that are explained in there of His mercy and of His compassion and of His grace and of His love, all of these things shine forth from the Word of God. Every word is absolute truth because God is, by definition, truth. Uh, back off that. God is not by definition truth, but truth is of God. And God is always true. Truth is not God. Of course, God is a lot more than truth. But the word that we read here is also eternal because God is eternal. What does it say in the Psalms? Forever thy word is settled where? In heaven. The sense of the eternality of the word of God because it expresses the very nature of God. Now we call this book the word of God. You know, most of us use that as a synonym, don't we? We say the word of God. We have uh, a little tape that we used with our granddaughter, and uh, it, it talked about the fact that, what do you call this book? Well, you call it the Bible, you call it the Word of God. And, and this whole thing is called the Word of God. Now, Paul, when he was writing to Timothy, said all Scripture is what? God breathe. The whole of the Bible is, is God's breath, God's giving of himself through the word to his people. And all scripture is a revelation of the eternal truth. It's a revelation of God himself. I believe that if we are sincere in our search to know him, our search has got to focus here. It's got to focus in this book. It can't, it can't focus in our fellowship with each other. It can't focus in our going to church and going to this and going to that. Um, you know, it can't focus in Christian music. Not that those things aren't helpful, but the focus has to be here because this is where we can come to know the eternal God. Most of us are familiar with the fact that the 119th Psalm teaches us so much about the significance of the Word of God. Let me just read a few verses that are quite well known to us from Psalm 119. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? And obviously, young man, young woman, old man, old woman, whatever belongs here. How can a person keep his or her way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. With all my heart I have sought thee. Do not let me wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I treasured in my heart. That I, might, that I may not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of thy mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies. As much as in all riches, I will meditate on thy precepts and regard thy ways. I shall delight in thy statutes. I shall not forget thy word. And, of course, the 119th Psalm goes on in, in this vein. Um, the absolute essential nature of understanding and knowing the Word of God. Because that's how we know God. We can't know Him, really, outside of this and the re reverberations of this in other people's lives and in the music and, and so forth that uh, we experience.
Now this passage in Genesis includes the very first use of the word vision in Scripture. It comes from the verb to see or to behold. And this word, however, will show up many more times in Scripture after this, but this is its first use. Now, how is it that God made himself known to people before this time? Well, it may not have been differently, but it just was never called a vision before, maybe. Or maybe it was differently than the way he appeared to Abram. The word, to me, I think it's important to understand that the word vision here implies that what is seen is real. But it may not be perceived by the conscious mind. In other words, it may be a subconscious encounter. But it's nevertheless real. Now, was he dreaming? Doesn't say. Was he in a trance? Remember, Peter was on a, in a trance on the rooftop in Joppa. Was he carried up into heaven, so to speak, as was Paul and as was John? We don't know. We cannot determine here. Some commentators, like Kyle, the old German commentator, he believes the entire chapter is the vision. In other words, everything you read about in chapter 15 of Genesis is part of the vision. Now, everything is happening inside of Abram's mind as God is given it, giving it to him. Others say no, that when you read verse 5 and when you read verses 9 to 11 and so forth, that uh, these were conscious acts that Abraham uh, involved himself in, sandwiched in between the vision. So you kind of have a live action vision going on here. <laughs> you know, he's seeing this vision, but he's actually doing physical things at the same time and going out and getting these real animals and really cutting animals in half. And, and putting him here, whereas others say, no, no, that's all part of the vision. He in the vision goes and does this, and in a vision all of these things happen, and, and they weren't actually a physical thing which took place. Well, it really doesn't matter uh, whether it was live action or, or whether it was purely uh, all a vision. It's the truth that comes through this chapter that's really important to us. In his very first statement there, in chapter 1, in verse 1, where he says, Do not fear Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Is really a key passage because in it we find three promises. First of all, God says, Do not fear. Now that's a command, yes. But implicit within it and implied by it is the promise that God will, will meet the need that God is our undergirding. Underneath are the everlasting arms, as we read in Scripture. That God is adequate. So although the command is do not fear, it's premised on the adequacy of God to, to meet the need, so there is no need to fear. This is, of course, the first of scores of times in Scripture where God says that very same thing to His people. Do not fear. Do not be anxious. Be anxious for nothing. Because God is there to meet the need. Because anxiety and fear implies a lack of trust in God. Now, at the same time, God doesn't go around whacking us down every time we have fear and anxiety because He knows it's a natural human emotion. But He wants us to learn 
to trust in Him. Because it's not that being fearful or anxious is necessarily a sin. It's just that it's detrimental to our physical, emotional, and spiritual health. And God wants us to, to have strength and to be well in those areas. And so His promise is to eliminate those problems. That, that is the fear and anxiety from our lives. There's one thing or, or one person God tells us in Scripture to fear. That's Him, right? Fear God, the Scripture teaches us. But we're not to fear anyone else or anything else. Especially if we're walking, well, if we're walking in obedience to Him. It's so important to always remember that there is that condition. It requires that we are walking faithfully with Him. Because if we're not, uh, then we have reason to have fear. Isaiah 41.10 uh, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So Jesus took this truth and brought it down to us as believers in Him. He is with us. He is always with us. We have no reason to fear. Though it might seem that hell is arrayed against us, we have no reason to fear. Because God, through His Spirit, will raise up a standard against the enemy. Then we also read here where the Lord said to Abram, I am a shield to you. Why should he not fear? Because God is his shield out there to protect him from all those things that would come to destroy him. Physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever they might be. God is his covering. God is his protector. The word there is literally the word for a shield that was used in battle. And as, as I was studying that, it reminded me of the 91st uh, Psalm. So many of us has re have read that so many times and we've heard it quoted. It's really an encouraging psalm to read, especially when we feel like we're being overwhelmed. Psalm 91, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Most of you are aware of the fact that that's the name of a book. It's the name of a book written by Elizabeth Elliot having to do with the death of her husband and the other four missionaries that were with them. And you might say, well, you know, if, if they were abiding or dwelling in the shelter of the Most High, how come they died? How come they were murdered there on the beach, Palm Beach, on the Kurai River in the mid-50s? But, you know, the whole testimony of, of that book, of that story, of the events that are around that, uh, help us to understand the real meaning of Psalm 91. Psalm 91 doesn't mean that there never will come nigh us some kind of a physical problem, that we'll never be in an accident, we'll never get sick, or you know, never have a problem of any sort. It doesn't mean that. It's talking about the eternal standing that we have before God. And if we keep that eternal standing before our eyes all the time, then we recognize that we may be beaten down sometimes, it seems physically or emotionally, or financially, or whatever it might be, but God will not allow us to lose our footing in Him.
He will always be with us and meet our need. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. Now, just as God said, I am a shield to you. So we read here. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day or of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hands, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. The young lion, this is strong opposition, and the serpent, this is subtle opposition, will, you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high, because he has known my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him, and I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life I will satisfy him and let him behold my salvation. God is our shield. And that is the testimony he gave to Abram. And that's the same word that comes to us through Christ. He is our shield. He is our fortress. He is our mighty tower. And, and we stand in his strength even though we may be buffeted in body. And we may have trials and tribulations. We have to understand it. Jesus said, in this life you will have tribulation. So as we read this psalm, we're not reading that there's a guarantee that, you know, we can go out into battle and people are going to die all around us, but not even a bullet will touch us, you know, like we have a charmed life or something. What it's talking about is the eternal standing before God. And we have to always try to picture that as God does. We have to look at ourselves as God looks at us. We're so tied up in the physical flesh here that we, we tend to not look at the eternality of it all. And, and we think that this, as, you know, as, as we read in the New Testament, this momentary light affliction sometimes doesn't seem to be momentary, nor does it seem to be light. But it's only that as it's compared with the eternal weight of glory. Because if we look at it in the sense of those, those around us, it can be very heavy. And it can seem like it's forever. And yet, when you compare it with, with the eternal glory that, that stands before us, where forever and ever and ever we'll stand in the presence of God, it is but a moment. Because Scripture teaches us that our life is, is fleeting. It's but a vapor. It's a shadow. We, we blossom up in the morning and in the afternoon we're withered and gone. And <laughs> sometimes that's the way it seems, right? The older you get, uh, the faster the sun seems to be passing over the sky, you know? It's getting later, later in the afternoon. <laughs> what it seems like. Uh, you know, it always reminds me that when you're, when you're 15, you can't wait till you're 16 mm -hmm. so you can drive. And then when you're 16, you can't wait till you're 18 so you can vote. Well, I don't know how many really look forward to that, but till you're 21 and you're considered an adult, right? Uh, even though they say teenagers now last until the middle 20s for the most part and even beyond many times. <laughs> but boy, I tell you, once you achieve those goals, it seems like... No time at all, your kid's 21, then your grandchild's 21. 
That's frightening. Well, not really. For many, it's encouraging because it means that much sooner we'll be out of this momentary light affliction and enjoying that <laughs> eternal weight of glory. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have to stop here, but let me just sum up this, this second one this way. This, this promise includes the first of the I am statements of Scripture, where it says, I am a shield to you. And that I am is over and over discovered in Scripture until that moment when Jesus would say, before Abram was, I am. Equating himself with Yahweh of the Old Testament. It's a statement of what God is, of his very nature. He is a shield. God doesn't kind of invent some little thing to stick in front of you down here. He is, by his very nature, a shield to those that love him and obey him. That's who he is. And if he lives within us, then we always have that shield with us because he is a shield. He can't be other than the shield if he is with us.